into our Bibles, back into Scripture. And so today we are going to close our Psalm 116 series, our Delivered series. And so this will be the, the last of five. If you've missed any, they're all on the website. You can go to bgcovenant.org. You can find whatever you need there. Uh, so this will be the end of that. Next week, uh, we'll start a brand new series around uh, community. Gather, share, bless. What does that rhythm look like in our daily lives? What does that look like as followers of Christ? And, and how does that actually work? And so Greg and, and Tim are going to lead us in that and start us off in that series the next couple of weeks. And then after that, we'll take a deeper dive a little bit into what we're doing today, which is this way of life that, that Christ has called us to, this kind of make disciples and, and do this journey together. And what would that look like uh, if we take a deeper dive into what does that really mean? Today we close on Psalm 116, and so we're going to do so with verses 15 through 19. And they're going to be up here on the screen if you want to read them along. The scripture says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. So this is David closing out this uh, psalm, and he's, he's finishing it with kind of this flurry. What we've seen in this series in the first four weeks, in the, in the first part of Psalm 116, is David learning to trust, and David finding protection. David speaks about his affliction, and then last week we went through his response to the great blessing of deliverance that he experienced. And so what he finishes with is this vow. David's vow is fascinating to me. Um, because David, as the psalmist, reminds us that God sees his people as precious. When I first read this, I went, precious in the sight of the Lord is the, the death of his, like, he likes that? And I dug into it a little bit in the language, and, and so when we read verse 15, it says, precious is in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. What that means is that God finds his children precious, and he holds them in a precious way, so that when they pass, he feels it, and he cares, as opposed to just oh yeah, whatever, them, precious in the sight of the Lord, are his servants. And so their life and ultimately their death matter to God. And so I moved past that and I went, okay, well, if that makes some sense to me, what about this vow? David restates his deliverance and his promise to live a life in in sacrifice in return to God for his goodness. He says, I will fulfill my vows, which harkens back to to verse 2, where we read a few weeks ago. It says, because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. David remembered that God listened. David, he remembers that God inclined himself with this posture of, of God literally inclines himself to David and, and reaches down and touches David and delivers David. And David says, as a result of that, at the close of the psalm, I will live my life in return. And so he's called on God and now he vows to God to live his life as this toast, this offering. And so we have to ask the question, what is a vow? We've talked about this a little before, but, but a vow has nothing to do with a feeling. It has everything to do with behavior. Wedding vows are not, you make me feel like this. They're, you're going to stick with me because you're stuck with me no matter what. When, when I was um, trying to get my wife to marry me, I took her up on top of uh, this observation tower in San Antonio called the Tower of the Americas. It's a 750-foot-tall tower, and I take her to the observation deck, and I just started laying out promises to her. And at the end of all these promises, I proposed. But those promises were my vows to her, and none of them had to do with, you make me feel this way. And I won't tell you what they were, but I will tell you 
that they still get referenced regularly. (laughs) Those were private vows I made. Hey, if this happens, when that goes that direction, when this goes sideways, here's where I'll be. Those were private vows I made. But look at David. David's saying something more akin to the vows in a, a wedding ceremony. Andy and Ellie, I'm going to point at Andy and Ellie. They're getting married in October. And I'm going to make them say vows in front of their family and their friends. And the reason those vows are made publicly is because what I will tell their family and their friends, whether their family and friends like it or, or not, is, is their job is to help with the vows. Their job is if they've been included in this public profession, their job is to cheer them on, to encourage them to, to fight for that. And if someone were to break that, it's the people who are at that wedding that are going to be responsible to put it all back together. That's a public vow. And that's what David's saying here. David's saying, I'm going to fulfill the vows I made to my, to my Lord. I'm going to do that in the presence of all of his people in the courts of the house of the Lord. So what we have to remember is in David's time, there was one altar where all the people would gather. And John Calvin says about this passage, he says, this, this idea that they would gather at this, this communal altar in the temple, this idea that they would, um, David would fulfill his vows in the presence of the people, Calvin says, that means that they would commit to mutually stimulate one another to the cultivation of godliness. That what David is saying, I'm going to do this in the presence of, of the people. I'm going to do this in the courts of the house of the Lord. What he's promising is he's going to stimulate God's people to the cultivation of of goodness and godliness, which is just this such a rich word picture of what David is promising to do. This is not a vow of private obedience, which we so often find ourselves, especially in American Christianity, where we read something and we individualize it immediately and make it about me. David is saying, yes, it's that, but it's that on display and it's that to encourage and stimulate and grow the rest of us. David is offering a life that aims for nothing less than to stimulate the cultivation of godliness in others. What if that was your mission when you woke up in the morning? Lord, help me stimulate the cultivation of godliness in others. I know in a farming community that there are people that know a whole lot more about farming than I do. Um, But I also know that just watching the seasons, you see the amount of work that goes into something growing. The cultivation of something is not happenstance. My uh, backyard garden would be great evidence of this. I have lots of things growing, but we haven't had a tomato yet. My cucumbers are about an inch long and not getting any bigger. Our lettuce doesn't look edible. Carrots never have seen them again. And I can walk through all the different things we planted. I go, man, the cultivation of anything is work. And it's knowing it rightly and it's spending time on it regularly and it's finding just the right soil and just the right spot. And this is saying that we should, like David, wake with the desire to cultivate godliness in others. Mutually stimulate each other towards something greater, which means that's going to take some work. Begs the question of us. When you were saved, or whatever other terminology you would use when you surrendered your life, or you were born again, or you became a believer, or converted to Christianity, in that decision, in that transformation moment, when you went from who you were to who you now are in Christ, the reality is when we choose to accept Christ's life, we also accept Christ's mission for his people. We have been given life, which means we now have life to give. 
Maybe you didn't. Maybe you're like, hey, no one told me there was more to it than, than just accepting this gift. Jesus can't be separated out as Savior to those who just want to avoid hell and Lord to those who really want to follow him. The reality of Jesus, he can't be separated out as, as Lord on one hand and Savior on the other. He's both. It's a package deal. So following Jesus ultimately means not only will he save you, he will, but he becomes Lord, and then we either submit to that or we don't. And for a believer to submit to anything else is a violation of the value made to him in the first place. Jesus is Lord and Savior. And what Jesus told us to do in Matthew 28 is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to follow Jesus, to obey Jesus. That, that was his, what we call the Great Commission. We don't actually think about it much. A lot of times we've relegated that to that's something for missionaries. But that was what he told his followers to do. What is his commission? What does that mean? Commission is an instruction, a task, an assignment. Jesus' great assignment for his followers, the great assignment for the believer, the thing he would like us to vow to do in following him as Lord and Savior, is to make disciples, to draw people into the body, draw them into the family, invite them to the dinner table, and then teach them what it means to follow. Ultimately, show them what it means to obey. Give them life. I've given you life that you might give it away. And if that is done, and that's done correctly, then they turn around, and you know what they'll do? They'll make disciples. And that was Jesus' model. Why don't you make disciples who will turn around and make disciples, and so that generations from now, disciples are making disciples are making disciples. It's a virtuous cycle. It's how the church, the body of Christ, not covenant, the organization, it's how it functions. It's how it got to this place in history from from. 12 guys in a room with Jesus to 2 billion people who would claim Christianity today. Exponential growth happens that way. So to be a follower of Jesus is to be a maker of disciples. Someone who brings people to the family of God. Someone who teaches others what it means to follow Jesus. The vow Jesus asks us to make as his followers is to be someone who might invite others to the table and then show them the way we live. This is that private versus public kind of tension that shows up all of a sudden, right? We are Western Christians. We're Americans. We're individuals. And everything we do becomes individualized. And so the great danger for us is we would have great private obedience or great private faith or great uh, private righteousness that wouldn't leak out into any public sphere. And that doesn't mean you need to be on television shouting or you got to be on the side of Wooster throwing Bibles at people. That's not what that is. That's the mutual stimulation to the cultivation of godliness. That's do the people in your life, do they benefit from, are they being made disciples by your faith? I was talking to one of our elders, Ken Jenkins, in the previous weeks, and, and we were talking about this, this whole idea of discipleship because so many people think that that only happens kind of at the moment of, of belief, right? That, well, then I can take somebody and make them a disciple. What's interesting is discipleship as a word isn't even in scripture. It doesn't exist. So we've had to coin a term to come up with what, what does this actually look like. And, and Ken and I were kind of thinking about it and, and talking about what the scripture says. And, and he says, I kind of like to think of it as a continuum. There's kind of maybe a negative 10 and a positive 10. And somewhere around zero is that actual belief for somebody. 
where they become children of God like saved, born-again believers. And you can, you can walk somebody from a negative nine to a negative six. Never cross that line with them. Never see the fruit of your work with them. But taking them from this spot to that spot, that matters. If we had a community farm, right? We had a co-op garden and I did the I planted the seed and then you came back later with the fertilizer and someone else came back later and water and someone else came back later and did the harvesting. I wouldn't maybe get to taste the fruit of what I planted, but I moved it from this spot to that spot. And we have to think about people uh, sort of in that manner. There's no lost causes. There's none beyond redemption. And just because somebody seems a long way off doesn't mean they don't deserve our willingness to walk them along their faith journey. And maybe their faith journey Our role is to walk them before they ever find faith. But it's to plant those seeds along the way. Listen to how Jesus invited some folks. Matthew 11, 28 through 30, he said, Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. Recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. We read this recently. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythm of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This is Jesus basically modeling for us what this invitation to discipleship looks like. It's not about teaching someone which rules to follow, but about showing them the way to follow the ruler. That's what we invite people to. It's not teaching them which rules to follow. Oh, you can't do that anymore. You got to do this. You can't do that. Careful on this. It's showing them the way to follow the ruler. An invitation to follow Jesus is then an invitation into the unforced rhythms of grace. Jesus commissioned us to invite people into life with him, into the path of his goodness on the faith journey. But most often we don't disciple others because we're afraid. We're afraid we don't know enough scripture. We're afraid we don't understand enough theology or we don't have all the answers. And so we wait until we know just a little bit more, until we learn just a little bit more, until we're just a little bit more mature. is isn't about that. David looked at it and said, I have this life. I'm going to give it. I have some, some experiences, some, some history. I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to give it. Because the person that's at a one on the 10 scale, can they disciple someone who's at a zero? Which isn't to say we're all going to get assigned a number and you're going to carry that around and be like, I'm looking for a four because I need a, it doesn't work that way. But everyone can can walk with someone else along the journey. Everyone can hold someone else's hand as we grow up in faith. There isn't somebody who cannot walk with someone else in faith. It isn't about becoming an expert. It isn't about uh, becoming uh, the next great theologian in order that you might have a conversation with somebody. Sometimes, Sometimes the beauty of the journey is asking the right questions together. We moved to Ohio 14 months ago. Most of you already lived in Ohio. So what you did is you invited us to Ohio and then you discipled us in the ways of Ohio. Do you realize that? You invited us. We didn't live here. We visited. Seems like a nice place. And then you called and you're like, hey, we think this might work. And we went, okay. And so you, first you invited us in. And then you said, let us show you how to live in this place that's so strange to you. Where's all the concrete? There's like grass. Why isn't it so hot? What is this giant spoon for? That's a snow shovel. What's snow? 
You invited us and you discipled us into what that looked like. You told us that Grand Rapids has this little restaurant that when your guests come in, it'd be a really neat thing to go drive them to Grand Rapids and take them to this place. It has a great little patio. It's quaint. The food's good. You'll love it. We went, oh, okay. Or you said Lakeside is this hidden treasure on Lake Erie in the summer that you can go to. It's like this throwback to the 50s. You should come, come with us and see it. And we said, okay. You said you have kids. Well, you should go to Imagination Station. So, so somebody bought us a pass to Imagination Station and said, come, take them there. They'll love it. And they do. And someone said, come and see this zoo with us. It's an amazing zoo that we have around here. But l- let me take you and show you. And they showed us. Somebody said, buy sweet corn here, not there. Take dance lessons, little girls, here. Here's how to have a basement. We don't have those. Here's how to winterize your house. What is winter? Here's how to use a snowblower. You invited us to Ohio, and you showed us the rhythm of life here. That's what Jesus is asking us to do for others. And here's the reality. When we stretch this metaphor a little bit further, you're wildly imperfect people. Thank you. You are, right? You're wildly imperfect. And yet, you walked us through how to live here. Bill Larson brought a snowblower over. You know, it was like August last year, and I had never, I just had no idea what I was in for. And it was a mild winter, and I was like, wow, that was great. And he brings this snowblower over, and he shows me how to use it. He goes, I had an extra just here, blesses us. And he goes, here's how you use it. It'll all work out. You'll figure it out. Is he an expert? Does he manufacture snowblowers? Is he a salesman, a designer of them? No. But he has way more experience in it than I do. So he says, if you have questions about it, just call me. If, you, if it runs into issues, just call me. And when, when this happens, you'll need to, to, to just hit that with a wrench. It'll all work out. How, how can he? He discipled me in that. He invited me in and said, I'm not the expert, but I've done this a couple more years than you. And so let me help you along the path. And when you have questions, ask me. I may not know the answer, but I'll walk it with you. That's discipleship. It happens when we invite people into the rhythm of the Christ life. Sometimes it's one-on-one, come follow me type stuff. Sometimes it happens in a community group as mature couple will nurture others through different stages of life. When you're growing as a follower of Jesus, you know it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you've been commissioned to make disciples. Like David, then we come to the altar, we come to church, to this gathering place, to mutually stimulate one another to the cultivation of godliness. The vow that David made, this public profession, is not unlike uh, the profession we make as members of the church. We have a new member lunch today, which is to say, we're going to sit down with a bunch of folks and say, tell us your story. And then after we hear their story, we're going to go, well, here's our story, and here's what it means to be a part of this story in an ongoing way. And we're going to kind of just lay that out in front of them and say, no decisions today. I want you to think about it and pray about it. We want you to really be sure, because this is a family, and we, we commit to some stuff. We commit to encourage each other, to cultivate godliness together, to comfort each other, to walk alongside each other. We commit socially and spiritually and financially. We commit to this thing. 
And we commit as followers of Jesus to make disciples. And this is public profession because then a few weeks later, we'll bring them up here and you'll come and put your hands on them and pray for them and welcome them to this family. Which is to say, we're doing this for each other. We're going to invite people to follow Jesus and not a flimsy religion. We're going to invite the lost world to hear the true gospel, to respond and to follow Jesus. We have life to give. Why would we hold it back? We have community group hosts in the room. People that said when we first asked in January, would you be willing to host a community group? Some people went, oh man. I guess I'll open my house up to people regularly. I guess we'll have 15 kids in the basement. Who knows what they're going to get into. I, I guess we'll figure it out. Those hands raised, when I see them in my memory, I see people who are saying, I will invite people to learn the unforced rhythm of grace. I will let people watch me as I take care of my dog or as I go through my own trials, as I discipline my children. I will, I will invite you into my home and watch how I do it, and I will not be perfect, but I will display it. And then I will challenge you to do it better than I did it. That invitation to discipleship is a rejection of religion. Because religion, I hand you a book or a checklist and I say, just do what's in there. It's fine. And if you do enough of those things, you kind of make it. And if you don't, then we'll figure out a plan. The invitation to follow Jesus is a rejection of religion. Religion says obedience stirs you to salvation. Christianity says salvation stirs you to obedience. Jesus stirs something in us that drives us to desire greater obedience, greater trust, greater hope, greater joy, to follow a Jesus that stood in for me, to follow the Jesus who broke our chains to sin, who gave his life that we might truly live. If you're a follower in here, the question becomes, are you living out the vows that you made? Are you living out the commission from Christ? Are you making disciples? Are you training up people to carry the torch after you? Are you ushering people into the unforced rhythms of grace? That's the challenge. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, consider this your invitation. We would love to invite you into the unforced rhythm of grace. The beauty of a faith that says it is not your works but the gift of God, the gift of grace through faith that finds you saved and finds you whole and walks you back towards shalom, to peace, to wholeness, to rightness. You're invited. There's no better time to open your heart, your hands, to accept the life that Jesus offers, to get off the treadmill of religion and step into a relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are your children. We are your creation. God, we would confess that at times we have taken our faith and, and turned it into religion. At times we have taken uh, the beauty of grace and broken it into rules. Father, my prayer is that, that we as a community would again reject that. We would accept nothing less than you. We would preach nothing less than you. 
that we would invite those around us into nothing less than you. That by our words, by our deeds, by our display of our lives, that we would be asking people, inviting folks into the unforced rhythms of grace in following Jesus. Lord, give us courage in the relationships where uh, that could be dicey. God, give us endurance with those that are far from you. Give us endurance to walk that path, to hold a hand, to walk the journey, to bring them one step closer, whether we ever get to see it or not. Father, help us be true students, these disciples that don't just learn and learn and learn, but Father, we learn so as to give away, we grow so as to grow others. God, for those in here that would say they're not yet a follower of Christ, that they don't yet know if they believe, we pray for those hearts. You would make yourself real to them, that you would uh, stir in their spirits an undeniable truth and draw them to yourself that we might walk together and see others join the cause, the journey, the beautiful salvation that you offer. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice, his resurrection, and that our life is secure in his. We pray in his precious name. Amen.